This episode of The Murder in My Family is brought to you by Madison Reed. Madison Reed hair color is gorgeous, salon quality, multidimensional, ammonia-free, and delivered to your door for less than $25. Visit madison-reed.com for 10% off plus free shipping on her first hair color kit with promo code FAMILY. That's code FAMILY. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash themurderinmyfamily. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. Please allow me a moment to share some important information before we get started. If you find that you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment to rate and review it wherever you listen to podcasts so that the show can continue to grow and reach new listeners. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderinmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at murderinmyfam or by searching for the Murder My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support the show via Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the Murder My Family. Some benefits of being a Patreon supporter include access to bonus content not heard in regular episodes of the podcast, plus early access to ad-free episodes. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I give shout-outs to any new supporters. In this episode, I'd like to thank Kristen Buford and Paula Chassie. And thank you to all the supporters that generously donate and keep the podcast going and improving. Thank you, and now on with the show. This is episode 16 of The Murder of My Family. And in the first 15 episodes... You've heard people open up to me and share the pain of losing a loved one. And not just share it with me, but share it with you, the listeners. Each case I've covered has left a mark on me personally. And my heart goes out to all the families of the victims featured on this podcast. As hard as each of these cases has been to present, I've had the most trouble covering cases of murdered children. Murders of young children are especially deplorable. One especially tough episode for me to put together was episode 9, The Murder of Rachel Runyon. I warned listeners in that episode that if hearing about the murder of a child was too hard to listen to, that I wouldn't hold it against anyone who decided to skip the episode. For episode 16, I have to give that same warning, because today I'm discussing the abduction, rape, and murder of a young girl. As hard as episodes about murdered children are to create or listen to, their stories need to be told, because sadly, children are not immune to becoming murder victims. There's an especially disgusting breed of killers out there that don't give special consideration to a victim's age. This episode is about the victim of one such killer, 8-year-old April Marie Tinsley. And once again, if this is too much for you, please stop this episode now. There is an outcome in this case. It took three decades, but we know who did it. 
I can't say its closure for the family were labeled a bright spot, because can there really be anything like that in a case like this? April Tinsley is never coming back to her family. But if there's justice in the world, the man that did this will never be able to hurt another child again. April Tinsley was a happy eight-year-old girl living in Fort Wayne, Indiana in 1988. On Friday, April 1st of that year, which was both April Fool's Day and Good Friday, April was abducted while she walked home from a park to a friend's house. What followed the abduction was heartache for her family, and evidence of a sick and twisted monster responsible for her abduction, as well as a trail of taunting clues that would frustrate investigators for years and leave Fort Wayne in fear. Immediately after April's abduction, over a hundred police and residents searched in vain hoping to find any sign of April. They didn't find her, but a major lead surfaced. A witness had reported seeing a man in a light blue pickup truck pull alongside April before she vanished, and a composite sketch was created of the driver. On April 4th, three days after April vanished, her body was found by a jogger in a ditch almost 20 miles from where she was abducted. Although she was clothed, an autopsy would show that the little girl had been raped and suffocated. Not far from the body, police discovered a sex toy and one of April's shoes. Police chose not to release details of the sex toy or the fact that April's shoe was found separately from her body. Investigators found DNA on April's clothes that belonged to her killer and collected and preserved the evidence. Despite having clues to work with and the eyewitness account of the driver in the blue truck, there were no arrests, and the case cooled off. Two years later, in 1990, not far from where April's body had been found, a teenage boy discovered writing on his family's barn. A chilling message was scrawled on the barn, which read, I killed eight-year-old April Marie Tinsley. Did you find her other shoe? I will kill again. Ha, ha, ha. The writing looked like a child's scrawl and included misspellings. The fact that the author of the barn note mentioned April's shoe being separate from her body made police think that the message was from the actual killer and not just a hoax. After the barn door message, it would take 14 more years for the killer to make contact, but he wasn't finished taunting the police or the community. In spring of 2004, four handwritten notes turned up around Fort Wayne. These notes would be discovered in mailboxes, and most shockingly of all, on bikes that belonged to little girls. The notes, all written on lined yellow paper, and with handwriting and misspellings that were similar to the previous barn writing, were left in plastic bags, accompanied by used, semen-filled condoms, and Polaroid photos that partially showed the killer's body, nude from the waist down. DNA collected from this new evidence proved to be a match with the DNA of April's murder. There was no doubt the sadistic writer was also April's killer. One of the letters read in part, Hi, honey. I've been watching you. I am the same person that kidnapped and raped and killed April Tinsley. You are my next victim. If you don't report this to police, or I don't see this in the paper, tomorrow or on the local news, I'll blow up your house. News of this killer resurfacing once again sent area residents into a panic, and they had to face the reality that the monster that killed April Tinsley might be once again walking among them. However, after these letters were received in 2004, the killer went silent, 
and was never heard from again. Leads were followed up and suspects looked into, but no arrests were ever made. Despite the lack of an arrest and the passage of 30 years, the killer had left valuable clues behind that might one day help identify him. These included the various writing samples and the sex toy that was found with April's body. There was also the eyewitness description of the killer's truck and the Polaroids left with the letters in 2004. But the most important clue left behind by the killer was his DNA. Investigators had entered that DNA into CODIS, looking for matches to other crimes or known criminals in the database, but never got a match. In 2016, a cutting-edge DNA technology by the company Parabon Nanolabs was used to create a new composite sketch of what the killer may very well look like based on his DNA. But in 2018, the year when so many crimes would be solved with DNA with the help of Parabon, Genetic Genealogy, and the public DNA database GEDmatch, the DNA in April's case was finally tracked to the killer. That killer turned out to be 59-year-old John D. Miller. Police confirmed that his DNA was a 100% match to the DNA found on April's body and in the used condoms. When police brought him in for questioning, he admitted that he had killed April. He is currently awaiting trial, and that should happen in 2019. Miller lived within 20 miles of the abduction site for most of his life. The pride he showed in April's rape and murder, and in taunting area residents for decades afterwards, is nauseating. His complete lack of remorse reminds us that there is evil in this world. If you listen to the other podcasts that I host, Criminology, you may already know that we just covered this case in great detail in Season 4, Episode 4. So that makes this a bit of a crossover episode with Criminology. If you haven't listened to that episode, I suggest that you give it a listen as we do a very detailed deep dive in April Marie Tinsley's case. And in Season 4 of Criminology, we're discussing cases just like April's that were solved in 2018 with the help of Parabon, GEDmatch, and Genetic Genealogy. I had the honor of talking about April's case with her mom, Janet, and you can hear part of that interview in the Criminology episode, as well as here when we return after this message from our sponsor. Hi, Janet. Thanks so much for coming on to discuss April's case with me today. You're welcome. And I wanted to say right from the beginning just how happy I was when I saw that police had made an arrest in April's case. How good did that feel when police let you know that the man who did this to April had been caught? Uh, it felt real good. We were excited. But, and, then, and then in the same frame, we were, like, shocked because we wasn't really expecting it. I mean, it's been this long, and it's like, are you for real? It actually really happening. So you wanted it for so long, but then it actually happened. You almost didn't believe it was real. Right. And I imagine it was bittersweet for you because on the one hand, you have an answer about who did this. But on the other hand, having that information doesn't bring back April. How tough has the last 30 years been for you and your family to deal with all this? Uh, well, we've been through a lot. And it, we're still trying to cope with it and trying to figure out if it's, you know, actually reality. And it's, it's slowly, I mean, it's slowly coming together. <laughs> I've followed April's case for so many years. 
And I've wanted to see this case solved so badly. And I was happy to see that news that they had made this arrest. And I can only imagine how happy everybody in your area where you live was as well to, to find out that somebody that had done some bad stuff like that had been caught. Yeah. At first, everybody kept saying, are you sure it's him? You know, is the right person? Um, it had to be like more than one. I said, there, well, he admitted it. And I said, there, well, we'll just have to, you know, take it day by day and see how it pans out. And I know crimes like this against children are hard to discuss, but at the same time, our kids are the most valuable thing we have in the world. So, you know, we need to not let cases like April's fly under the radar and, and it's important to remember them and talk about them to keep them from happening again. Yeah, I I talk about her all the time. I bring her name up. I got her pictures all around. Anybody that talks about her, they, they act like they're afraid to say something. I said, don't be afraid. You'll mention her name. You'll talk about her. I mean... She was she was a little she was a child she was a human and like it's you know she wasn't there so I bring her up a lot. Yes, you don't want her to be forgotten, basically. No. And if you can, I know this may be hard on you, but can you take us back to that day in 1988 when April went missing and walk us through what happened that day? That day it was um, April Fools and Good Friday. Well, on the same day, and all the children got out of school half a day, and she come home, ate lunch, changed clothes, and then she stole some of her Easter candy that was in her basket. She goes, I'm going to want to go over to her friend's house and play. And I watched her, you know, go partially ways, and then across the street knew she was right there and they were there playing for a while then she went home like around four and when she never came back we all went up there looked around went to Nicole's house they all came out and then we um Went to the little, little girl's house that lived two doors from her around the corner. And they said that Nicole stayed at the little girl's house. And April went out to go around the corner to get her umbrella that she left. And they said at time she left at one little girl's house to go around the corner. She never made it to her friend Nicole's house. We we were, that's when we all tried to panic, like, where would she go? Who else she knew? And she knew she don't um, want her off because she was her being shy and bashful. So it wasn't like her to just wander off and, and go someplace where she wasn't supposed to go? No. How quickly did you get that panic to where you went out looking all over for her and, and uh, how scary was that? Oh, it was pretty scary. I mean, not ex- don't know what you're, you know, you're doing. Not expecting to, you know, go wandering up and down alleys. And 
trying to figure out, you know, what all friends she knew, because she only knew a couple of people that lived around there. And she um, went to each and every place and looked and didn't find nobody. Then it was like, I waited until like 6 p.m. They said you had to wait a couple hours. And then we called the police and had her, you know, have them help find her. And then that's when we had like over 300 some people search party going on. And what was it like to have so many of those people, your neighbors and friends and people out there helping you to search for April? Uh, it was overwhelmed. I mean, not knowing the outcome and everybody, most of the people that was helping, they had, they had kids. They, they were all out trying to make sure she came home. So they really cared and they wanted to help you. Yeah. As a parent myself, I can't even imagine how hard that day must have been for you. What went through your mind after April, after you guys couldn't find her and you were looking so hard? What were you thinking at that point? Uh, well, so much, so many things were going through my mind. It's like, where is she? Where, who's got her, you know? Did she hurt somewhere? You know, things like that. You just never know. It was going through your mind. And for a few days, you're sitting around waiting, hoping for something good to happen, and the police are out looking for her. But then you get the worst possible news that you could get. How did police break the news to you that they had found April and that she was dead? Um, that, that day, I was supposed to do a a TV interview and was getting ready to do the interview and all of a sudden a, a marked car pulled up and the detective said that the interview was over. There wasn't going to be no TV interview and wanted to speak to me by myself. So we went where we lived there. We lived upstairs and we went upstairs and that's when they told me so when they showed me a picture, and the when they showed me it, it was in there, I knew where she was laying. It was her. So they showed you a picture of her actually after they found her, just to to make sure it was her. Yeah. And that must have been very difficult to to see. Oh yeah, it was. And after that happened, after the police started looking, and and you had to deal with with all of that that happened, how did you cope? How did you go through those days afterwards and, and get by, especially since you had, you know, a family and, and another child that you still had to care for? Well, it's like you're sitting there and you're still numb. You're not, you know, you don't know what you're, the next move you got to make. You, know, you don't know what family and everybody, they kept telling me, they go, it's, it, you know, it'll be all right. You know, you're strong. You're going to, you guys don't make it. And it's like, you just don't know what's inside someone's head when you're something like that happens. It's like, uh, yeah, you're going to be all right, but it's just going to take time. And we're still, we're still not used to it. 
Yeah, even 30 years later, it's still yeah, it's still a big thing for you. Oh, yeah. And during that time that, you know, you're trying to heal and you have to, you know, have a funeral for her and, and all this hard stuff that you've got to do, the police are out there looking for whoever did this. Did they stay in touch with you the whole time and keep you up to date with what they were doing? Uh, yeah, for a while there, we were up to date every day. Even if it was something small, and then when they changed out throughout the years, they changed out so many detectives. You get used to, you know, first couple people, and you get close to them, and then all of a sudden you got some new ones, and then there'd be maybe a gap in between letting us know anything. Like I told them, I don't care if it's a piece of paper with a drawing on it, if it's a a mark. Let us know if you found anything. And they all go, well, yeah, we'll let, we'll let you know. But then they're, at the same time, you get that little gap. It'd be like a year or two, you may not hear nothing. And it's like going through your mind. Are, you, they, are they still working on the case? Do they even, you know, care? And, I mean, that's what you're going, you're thinking yourself, but actually they're still working on it. And during that time afterwards, did you ever wonder if you knew the person that did this or if the person that did this might have known April or known your family? Did you start to wonder about people and, and think they might have been the person that did this? Uh, yeah, at first we try to think who would do this. Try to think. They, at first they thought it was like a family member. And we are thinking, looking like who in the family would be stupid enough to lower themselves to do something like this. And then we're thinking, no, it just had to be somebody random, you know, out picking up, you know, kids. And then they asked us if we knew um, anybody that would do it. And then when we found out who it was, and we were asked if we knew who he was and we ever seen him before. And I never, I never seen him or, um, only last time I knew anybody named Miller, it was uh, when I was in, I'll say, elementary school. At first, we didn't know who it was. So there was nobody that jumped out at you that you thought this might be the person that did this? Not at first, but um, I knew my one neighbor, when she was having problems, where they um, took her kids, and she kind of blamed me at first. And, you know, her boyfriend was always drunk all the time. And we, when the police net came to her house and they were, I guess they were there, they were doing like a welfare check and um, check and see if her, her house was clean like it was supposed to be. And apparently, I guess, they didn't like the way her house and that stuff was. So they they um, called the people in and had a, removed her three kids and I wasn't at home at the time. I was at, I took get son to the doctor and I was coming around the corner and everybody kept telling me, don't go home. You stay here. I was sitting there like, why can't I go home? And that's when I found out her kids were taken away from her and she, they were blaming me. And I was in there. Well, I said, talk to everybody. It wasn't me. I didn't know nothing about this. And then they said it was might have been like a revenge towards me. 
but I guess we when we had to give a list of people that we lived around and the police interviewed everybody and I guess they cleared him. So, so you thought that it was possible that this person may have been mad because they thought you were the one that turned them in and had their kids taken away and they might've tried to get revenge by taking April. Yeah. That's what they thought at first, but then it turned out to, it wasn't because I guess they talked to him, DNA and everything. It, he got cleared. So then we were like back at the beginning trying to figure out who, who could it be? And so a lot of years go by and then this killer starts writing letters and mailing letters about, you know, what he had done to April. And that scared, you know, people in, in that area where, where you lived. How, Frightened were people when he started writing those letters at the at the time. It pretty much got everybody's attention again because he was doing pretty good for a while. Then all of a sudden, it was like a few years went by, and then when the nineties hit, he started doing it on the um, barns and the notes. And it seemed like when he was putting them notes in the baggies and putting them on bicycles. It was always the little girls' bikes. He never had them on boys' bikes. It was always girls. Like he was just targeting little girls. And then when he was putting his um, pictures of himself in a couple of them, and then his DNA was in a couple of them, at first they couldn't find him in the database because they had his DNA and everything, but they just couldn't find him. And I kept questioning, why can't you find him? He said, well, he may never killed before. If he did, he didn't do any, leave any DNA behind. Or he did like robbery or some kind of theft that they don't do DNA on. And so he, his DNA wasn't in the database that the criminals go into. So yeah. uh, that's what they're trying to find to see if he was in there, but it didn't, it didn't match to any of those. No. And when those letters were sent and you saw that he was doing this to those little girls and leaving stuff on their bikes, did that sort of scare you or open up those old wounds for your family? You know, did that bring back uh, what he had done to April back fresh into your mind? Oh yeah. It's like, here we go again. Like, is this dude ever going to give up? And actually, who is he? But yeah, for a while there, he was terrorizing everybody, especially the family. It's like, we never get a break. You know, eventually a lot of time passes, several years, and then, you know, decades go by, and the case is still not solved. Were you thinking at that entire time that this case might not ever be solved, or were you always hopeful that eventually he would be caught? Um, at first, was it being, you know, 30 years, you're thinking it's never going to be solved. We're going to be like most of these out here, that they're just going to, you know, get about you, and nothing's going to come out of it. Then all of a sudden... Boom, because um, we at first we told them they needed to uh, try the Ancestry.com stuff, but they said that they couldn't do it because it's invading people's privacy. 
I said, I mean, in this case, it ain't nobody got any privacy. So they tried it, and that's, that's how they found found this dude. In 2018, they finally announced that they had arrested April's killer. Right. What did, that, what did that news feel like for you and your family? How good was it to finally hear that? Um, we were just doing our everyday thing, um, what we do every day, and then all of a sudden I looked up the kitchen window and I seen a police cruiser and a, a black SUV coming down. And I said, there was somebody's in trouble, not thinking that they're coming to my house. And then all of a sudden they pulled up in front of the house and it's like, okay, who's in trouble? And then all the prosecutor and a couple of the detectives and everybody come out. They come in and they go, we got some news for you. And I'm sitting there, okay. And then they showed us a picture, a flyer that they had. And they go, have you seen or do you know anybody that looks like this? And we all looked at him and said, I have never seen anybody that I can remember throughout the years. And they said that they told us his name and, and how old he was. And they said that they went to his house and they knocked on his door and Asked him, do they know, does he know why they are here? And he said, yeah. Said, you're here to arrest me for April Marie Chisley Kim. So he, he knew that his time was, you know, about the end. He he knew probably from watching in the news that these other people had been arrested, and he knew it was only a matter of time before he'd be arrested. Yeah. And that must have been a really good feeling for you at that moment just to know and see the person that did this and know that he wasn't going to get away with it. Uh, yeah, that's true. And you, you said that wasn't that guy that did it, uh, is not somebody that you knew or your family knew. He was a total stranger. Yeah. I mean, like I told him, none of us knew who he was. And cause they said they got him from pretty much the sketches that they had out. And you're looking at him, and you're trying to think, does he look like the sketch? But that was probably, you know, the sketch that they made was when he was younger. And then you're sitting there staring at him, trying to think, are you the sole person, or is there somebody else that you're covering up for? So there's still some some questions in your mind if, if he was the only person or if there was anybody else that was involved. Yeah, because I told the police department, I said, it was her being shy and bashful. And they said that she probably just, you know, got in the car with them. I said, no, she wouldn't even do that if it was a family member. She hides behind somebody. She was always scared to go to anybody's car. And then when um, this all happened, it's like, yeah, she might have just, you know, was tired and they get thought that he was going to give her a ride home. And I said, there. Now the only way that she would get in the car is he would have to get out and grab her. If she wouldn't volunteer herself, so we had so many different thinkings. Like, how did it pay, how did it go? And none of us still can't, you know, figure out. But like I told him, there has to be more than just him, because one person can't just do that. And, and, you know, now you've had some time for him to go to court and all, and, and 
Do you still think that, or you think now after a little bit of time that you've had that he is the only one? Um, sometimes it, there's a little part of me in back of my mind that he got to have somebody else. And then you stare at him and you're trying to think, how are you the only one that can do it? Is there any other ones that you might have done that they haven't figured out yet? And you just sit there staring at him like you got so much going through your, like, you just don't know what the answer will be because ain't nobody wanting to answer your questions. And I know you went to the court for one of the proceedings that he had and that you, you're not that far from him. What was that experience like being in that courtroom so close to him? Um, it was kind of scary. And I mean, I had like knots in my stomach, like, I, you know, not knowing what to expect. And you have the prosecutors that's on the case talking to you and telling you what's going to be this, what they're going to do. And you have all kinds of family members. I'll have my side. I'll have my husband's side. We're all sitting right there. And they'll have me, if they need to talk to me privately, they'll get me off the side or um, we'll go out the doors. And then when they bring him, if they have other cases before then, then his case will be the last one. And they'll bring him in there and, you hear all the family members underneath the breast saying, calling him this, calling him something else. And I'm just there, y'all shut up. I got my own words I like to say, but I can't. Did it make you angry? Did you have any kind of feelings when you saw him or you were close to him? What went through your mind? Oh, where we were sitting, I was in the front row, and he's probably, I don't know, 50 feet maybe. It wasn't too far, I mean, far enough, but I sit there and everybody else be crying. I'm sitting there just staring a hole from the side of his head. I don't, I never blink. I just stare. And the more I stare at him, the more I keep thinking, like, yes, I finally got you. And you ain't getting away. I'm going to fry, I'm going to have you fried. I had all kinds of things going through your mind. And the last court proceedings we had, he um, got him two lawyers, and they're trying to get it moved out of the city of Fort Wayne to somewhere else so people don't remember. But like we said, I don't care what part of Indiana you go to. And are you worried that when you go to court and you have to hear some of these things that it's going to be very difficult to hear some of the details that they talk about? Oh, yeah, because the prosecutors did tell me, they go, don't be discouraged. You're going to hear things and you're going to see things that has happened throughout the 30 years. I mean, we had 30 years of this. And I said, yeah, most of it I was in the dark. But they they said, you're going to be like, it's going to be like from day one, it's going to start all over again. But at the end, the results are going to be so much sweeter. And I said, yeah, I made a joke about it. I said, yeah, we're going to party like it's 1999. (laughs) You know, instead of focusing on the way that April died, I wanted to talk a little bit about her life and 
what kind of person she was? What kind of daughter was she for you? And what was it like having her in your life? She was shy, bashful. They said her, everybody told me when um, the way she acted and carried herself was like it was me reincarnated all over again. And she looked like me when I was younger and like before she was like my sister. And but when I was 16, I told everybody when I get married, my first child, if it's a little girl, it's going to have blonde hair, and blue eyes, and a little bit of curl in it, which she got the curl from her daddy. And when she was born, everybody goes, you ain't got a name. You ain't got to tell us her name because we already know. Because I had it written down on a piece of paper. I even had my mom go get it notarized. And say, this is what it's going to be. This was actually going to happen. And I got I got my wish. So you had been planning on having April in your life even before she came along. Yeah. And then when she came along, she was exactly what you were hoping for. Oh, yeah. I wish you had more time with her instead of the eight years. I wish I had to because you think you throughout the years, you know, she could have been graduated. She could got married and then you had one or three kids or whatever, how many she wanted and. I mean, she could have had a different outlook. Yeah, but when she died the way she did, it's like, you know, they took that away from me. And and every time when you go to court, you look at him and uh, you're thinking, you took something from me, I'm going to take something from you. If there's a family or a parent out there that's listening to what you're talking about and they're searching for their child or they had child that's missing or was murdered and they're waiting for justice the way you've been waiting for for so long, what advice would you give them? Um, the advice I would give them would be don't, don't give up. I mean, you may think it's never going to be solved. If it may take time, it may take a year, two, 10, 20 years, but with the technology and the, DNA that they got now, it will. It, their your case will get solved, but it just takes time. You, I mean, it'll take it'll take time. Just, just you know, just don't give up. Yeah, and you you definitely didn't give up. You hung in there for all all those years, and I'm glad to see that you finally have the person that did this in court, and you know, hopefully the trial goes good, and you'll get the outcome you're hoping for. I hope so too. I know everybody kept saying to me that I'm strong and you know I'm one strong person, but I got you on. I have my breakdowns. <laughs> yeah, so there were times when it wasn't easy for you. That's totally, totally understandable. I can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing what it was like going through this and, and talking about April with us. I hope that this arrest and court proceedings. I hope that it helps your family in some way and that you get the justice that your family deserves. I hope so too. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Murder of My Family. As we wrap up this episode, I'd like to play previews of two true crime podcasts that I think you'll enjoy. The first is for the Gone Cold podcast, which covers some of the most puzzling cases in the state of Texas. And the second is for a great Canadian podcast, Dark Poutine, 
which tackles some of the darkest and creepiest mysteries. And remember that every murder victim means something to somebody. Something happened in the home. Someone possibly was killed there, at least one person, and uh, then they disappeared. Texas is known for being tough on crime and those who commit it, or at least the ones who get caught. There are monsters among us. 60% of violent crimes in Texas go unsolved, and a majority of victims rarely make the headlines. Gone Cold Podcast, Texas True Crime, gives in-depth accounts of unsolved homicides and missing persons cases throughout the Lone Star State in an attempt to provide a voice for victims and their families. She was a loving person. That's why after 13 years, it's really bothering me still that nothing's been done, nobody's been found. Please join Gone Cold Podcast on your favorite podcatcher as we examine these forgotten and often underreported crimes. You really have to pray and hope for those people that really know something. Hello there. My name is Mike Brown, creator and host of the Dark Poutine Podcast. With me, as usual, is my good friend and co-host, Scott Hemingway. Say hello, Scott. Hello, Scott. (sighs) Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. We're two ordinary Canadians who chat mostly about true crime in Canada and our dark history. Subscribe to Dark Poutine through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. And join us weekly to get your fill of Dark Poutine. (laughs) 